0: And thanks for listening. How
1: will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Welcome to Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton. Eight years ago, California regulators and automakers pulled the plug on the first modern electric cars. This year, electric cars are rising again. At the recent Detroit Auto Show, manufacturers trotted out new cars that run on electricity some or all of the time. Are electric cars ready for prime time? or will they remain a niche product for urban elites? Will the market be driven by disruptive startups based in California or auto giants in Detroit, Tokyo, and Munich? For the next hour, we'll discuss electric mobility with our live audience in San Francisco and four experts. Anthony Eggert is a former commissioner of the California Energy Commission. Mark Geller is a co-founder of the advocacy group Plug-in America. Dermot O'Connell is vice president of business development at Tesla Motors. And Diane Wittenberg is executive director of the California Plug-In Electrical Vehicle Collaborative. Please welcome them to Climate One. Thank you all for coming. Um, Diane, let's start with you. Uh, what, you came out with a re- strategic report involved lots of people, automakers, uh, people in electricity, environmental organizations. And one of the top goals was satisfied customers, drivers of electric vehicles. So what's going to make those customers, uh, electrical vehicle buyers, satisfied?
0: Well, I think they're going to be satisfied if the cars run as advertised, if plugging in is easy and inexpensive, if they have a lot of models to choose from, if the price of the vehicles is competitive with conventional vehicles, and if the cars deliver their promise of being cleaner, uh, better for energy security, um, and uh, gives them a, a better ride.
1: And how close are we to that today with the vehicles that people
0: can buy or buy soon? Let's check back in in about a year, and okay. we'll find out. we'll get the
1: others. Um, Anthony, you're at the California Energy Commission, and we should say that uh, you are uh, a former – what your situation is you're a commissioner – uh, so I'm, I'm
2: awaiting to see whether or not
1: uh, I'll be reappointed by the new governor and, and very hopeful. But, okay. Uh, yes. All right. So, Anthony Eggert, uh, you're at the State Energy Commission. What is the state of California doing to support and promote electric cars?
2: So uh, California, the government agencies are very active um, looking for ways to promote a cleaner transportation energy system. And electric vehicles offer one uh, possible option to substantially reduce uh, greenhouse gas emissions from the transportation sector, uh, criteria pollutants, and to do so in a way that potentially has customer uh, benefits. And I think, to to Diane's point, uh, this is really going to be a customer-driven market transition. Uh, The vehicle has to be better. It has to offer advantages over the existing products. And I think it definitely has that potential. So what the state is doing is trying to figure out how to develop rules and regulations, and in some cases incentive programs to help facilitate a better consumer experience. Uh, Under uh, AB 32, we have a number of requirements for the auto industry uh, to develop cleaner vehicles um, that reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, There is a low-carbon fuel standard that recognizes electricity as a low-carbon fuel uh, that allows providers of electricity to sort of monetize that benefit. Uh, And then at the Energy Commission, Uh, They were given uh, about $100 million a year to invest in a portfolio of vehicle and fuel technologies, which includes electric vehicles. And so uh, the Energy Commission, for example, right now is administering uh, infrastructure uh, deployment programs across the state to put in 4,000 chargers, uh, is also funding um, electric vehicle uh, component and vehicle manufacturing facilities across the state so that the jobs uh, reside here in the state. Um, so we're doing a lot of things to help facilitate this market, and then we're hopeful that the consumer uh, recognizes this value and then the market takes off.
1: Okay. We'll come back and drill it down into some of those specific areas. Uh, Dear Mitt O'Connell with Tesla Motors, you've been making cars on the road for a couple years now, uh, but success is not assured for uh, EV adoption. What do you think that uh, uh, could happen here to, you know, let's talk about success, whether, whether this could actually be for sure or not for Sure.
3: Well, I mean, the history of new entrants in the automotive industry in general uh, has has not been, um, generally speaking, a a good story. Um, However, I think that in the past, uh, new entrants haven't uh, leveraged significantly new technology. Um, And that's, I think, the real promise uh, and the opportunity uh, of this technology suite in general and it's certainly the strategy that we're taking uh, with respect to how we're, we're, we're coming into the market. We've focused first and foremost on optimizing uh, an electric, uh, an all-electric battery uh, powertrain. Um, that was our first project, as exemplified in uh, uh, the Tesla Roadster. There's over 1,500 of those on the road uh, in 30 countries, uh, taking over 9 million miles driven right now. So. Actually, to an earlier point, I would say that uh, within a segment, uh, we're already successful, uh, both we as a company and uh, we as an industry. And, and uh, the next year, as Diane said, will be the proof point as to if we can broaden uh, the, uh, the demographics and, and uh, if some of our competitors, uh, the traditional OEMs, are able to uh, attack a broader segments at lower price points. Um, but uh, so that,
1: that segment is sort of the high-end roadster, yeah, right? a luxury I mean, right, car for someone yeah, who can drop absolutely.
3: A and and actually, to to, to uh, jump off uh, Anthony's point, uh, I might disagree with his point that this tech, that these cars need to be better, but they at least need to be as good as uh, what they are competing with. And and that was the explicit intention with the Tesla Roadster was to build a car that competes on uh, all sorts of performance characteristics, handling, acceleration, with other. Uh, cars in that $100,000 plus uh, category, sometimes known as supercars, but certainly known as high-end performance cars. So we have to compete with Porsche 911s in, in that in that category in which we compete. Um, and as we move into our second vehicle, a higher volume, lower price vehicle, the Model S, we're going to have to compete with other vehicles in that uh, price segment. So um, uh, it's a premium sedan, and it's going to have to have all of the fit, finish, uh, ergonomic, and uh, and other elements that uh, people in that category uh, have come to expect, and those are significant expectations. But um, indep- we, our, our philosophy, I guess, is that we build great cars, um, and uh, it, it's sort of an added benefit to uh, to the particular customer that they're getting a zero-emissions, uh, uh, oil-free uh, powertrain um, as, as a bonus. Uh, Mark, you're um,
1: part of a group of advocates that actually think that the – pollution and the, the environmental aspects are very important. Um, what do you think is going to be really important for uh, EVs to go from the sort of small niche market to go mainstream?
4: Well, I think what we're seeing is what will take them mainstream, which is that, as we've had for quite a long time, the demand for the vehicles is greater than the supply. We're often, we hear about a chicken and the egg and an egg question, and I think we've always had a chicken question. It's been a question of supplying enough vehicles for people. Certainly through this year, it would appear that Nissan and uh, Chevrolet have all but sold out of their first 30,000, 35,000 vehicles with the LEAF and the Volt. And so it seems to me that sort of the customer is ready. There are customers who are ready for it uh, as a zero-emission experience. There are customers who are ready for electric and plug-in hybrids for many different reasons, but it's really an issue of getting the cars to market and i think that what will it will take what will what will move consumers to be interested in these vehicles is their neighbors vehicle when the consumers who are a little bit slower to adopt experience what their neighbors have experienced then we can move forward and i think that will prod car makers to make more cars prod the government to continue good policies to continue incentives to make sure that the cost of the vehicles is not much greater than it is for for uh, a gas vehicle.
1: Dermot, is that right? It's a supply issue, but the, the demand's out there. If you guys could make more cars, people would buy them. You, meaning automakers?
3: Yeah. Again, uh, to degree, let me let me give you a perspective. I mean, uh, this is hardly a philanthropic endeavor. Uh, that which we've taken on, or anyone else should take on in this in this area, we're brutally business like in the way that we're we're going about doing this. In fact developing a high-end car was a way of uh, capturing some margin um, uh, and making it uh, something that would attract investors. And that's the point. Um, automotive, automotive programs are very expensive. We happen to do them in a very capital-efficient fashion, um, but for, a, uh, uh, for one of the OEMs, uh, our, uh, the, the term of art in the industry for uh, uh, companies like GM and Ford and BMW and so forth, uh, to take on a, a significant car program is a 1000000000 dollar endeavor. And unless you've got market signals that says that there's going to be uh, demand out there, then you're not going to make the decisions around supply, uh, which are all about allocations of capital, um, whether internal or, or external. So... Uh, yeah, I think that we're in a phase where uh, whatever can be done to, uh, to bring these vehicles into the market to demonstrate that there's significant volume and that there's excess demand over supply is going to be the signal necessary for the industry to take the next step and go from where they are, which is uh, adapting and converting existing platforms um, to, to electric powertrains, um, to pursuing full-on uh, electric uh, power, elect, you know, vehicle platforms and chassis that are optimized for, for an EV drivetrain, such as we're doing with our second car, uh, which is different from the Chevy Volt, which is, in some respects, a, a Chevy Cruze um, electrified or range extended. The Nissan Leaf, which is, in some respects, a Nissan Versa mm-hmm. electrified. Um, we have the opportunity, because we come to the business from a different perspective of um, of reimagining the vehicle. Say so you've, you've got an electric powertrain, it's got certain properties, you can put the battery low, which is, improves the center of gravity, it increases the, the volume inside the car for passengers, for, uh, for, uh, for luggage. Um, uh, so you do those sorts of things. But for a major manufacturer to look at 100,000, who needs to see 100,000 units of volume in order to justify the, the, the sort of investment I'm talking about that we're pursuing, you know, it's, it, there's got to be a, a major market signal uh, or, or significant market signal.
1: And a key market signal is, is cost. So let's talk about cost because electric cars cost more. They're more expensive. They're, right now they're still a, a premium product. What, what can be done to, to drive down the cost? And, and uh, Diane, you, you looked at this recently. I mean, are battery costs coming down significantly?
0: I think the projection is that they're coming down significantly, and that's the key to a, a well-priced car. So if today a battery is, what, $750 uh, per, per kilowatt, kilowatt hour, yep. yeah, the projection is $250, and I think that, uh, you know, Darmid would know these numbers better than I, but I think there's clear expectation by the automakers that they're going to get there and beyond. So,
1: In fact, Deutsche Bank recently, I think they revise their projections. Dearman, you mentioned this to me, that they revised their projections for, for further. The costs of batteries are dropping further than Deutsche Bank uh, right. predicted just, just a year ago.
3: I would just note, yeah, that's, that's true, and I'd refer you to Deutsche Bank and, and their analyst. Rod Lash is one of the best uh, and uh, uh, um, most accurate in this arena. Um, but uh, the, the, the cost per kilowatt hour uh, metrics that, that Anthony just referred to are... Significantly better uh, already uh, than than that which is sort of publicly understood. Um, we don't talk about you know publicly about what our advantage is in that respect, but uh, we are uh, we're we're already well beyond um, uh, uh, the numbers that are publicly projected, to the high end and approaching the the target numbers on the low end.
1: Because we've seen the price of photovoltaics, we all know, has gone
3: down by fifty percent.
1: Mm-hmm. Are we seeing the same order of magnitude in batteries? Are they really dropping?
3: Well, you know, I'd like to stay on, uh, you know, hard metrics. Uh, what we've publicly uh, said is, based on uh, empirical evidence and historical data, the, um, uh, the drop, the, the increase in energy capacity uh, of the sorts of cells that we work with has been 8% year over year for the past 10 years, and that's steady state improvement. Uh, that's not technology limited, so I think we could see that continue to, to improve. That energy density improvement is a good proxy for cost down, so okay. you could think about eight percent year over year. And I don't think it takes into, and that eight percent doesn't take into account uh, the step function opportunities uh, to take cost out uh, that are now in the offing because of the um, uh, the opportunity that we've that we'll take some credit for demonstrating that you know we've we've shown that a vehicle scale battery. The problem we had when we started our program was. No one was building vehicle-scale or vehicle-specific cells in the lithium-ion chemistry, so we adapted the best available cells to the purpose. Um, Having demonstrated that there was demand for these vehicles, and with some of the other OEMs coming in, uh, there's now a great deal of investment going into cell technology, and I think that it's reasonable to assume that we'll get step-function increases in both energy density, uh, so kilowatt-hour storage per unit, Um, uh, and then, uh, in parallel, um, uh, cost improvement.
2: Kilowatt, Anthony, you want to jump in? I just just want to add, I think, you know, this is um, the technology improvements in batteries is really what has been an enabling factor for this market to be viable. Um, That, coupled with the economies of scale that we've been able to achieve through the deployment of hybrids on things like electric motors, inverters, controllers, um, which will be part of the electric vehicle platform, uh, really gives us sort of a, a path, a technology and, and uh, cost path to making these vehicles uh, price competitive. Um, I do want to also mention, though, that you really want to look at total cost of ownership. So it's not just the initial purchase price of the vehicle, which is going to be higher initially, I think, without a doubt. Um, but the fact that we can take advantage of low-cost electricity, uh, you know, rough uh, numbers are, um, you know, we have about $3 a gallon gasoline going up. At about 10 cents a kilowatt hour uh, for electricity, it's about a dollar a gallon equivalent when you take into account the efficiency of the vehicle. And utilities are now offering um, interesting time of use options, which could allow that number to be even lower. And so when you factor all that in and look at the total cost of ownership, I think this can be a,
1: a very competitive technology. But that's a hard thing to do. We're all familiar with miles per gallon, but you start talking about kilowatt hours and you lose a lot of people and translate that into their car. That's a real public education and market challenge for, for people to be able to grok that
3: change, right? Yes, it is. I mean, we've, we've experienced it, and I'll, I'll tee it up uh, with you. There's, a, there's currently a, an, an effort at EPA um, as well as at, at ARB to look at mile-per-gallon equivalent. This is a communications challenge, right? Right. Um, and I think we can get i think it 's a little bit overstated to say that this is a barrier to entry um, not that that 's what you inferred, but it, it is something that a communication uh, issue I, I agree with Anthony wholeheartedly that uh, there are a couple of other communications challenges, and that is getting people to think about total cost of ownership of, of their ve- of their over the lifetime of their vehicle you know the, the whole emergence of leasing has sort of led people in that direction, but the more we can direct people to. You know what it's going to take. to... You know you're buying an incomplete solution when you're te- when you're driving an internal combustion engine vehicle off the market. It requires fuel. It's the old blades and razors model, although not integrated. Um, and so you know it's a bit different with an electric vehicle, and we need to focus, folks, on on that. Uh, and that's a commu- but that's a communications challenge.
0: And that's and that's in our report, taking charge, establishing California leadership. Uh, at an average conventional vehicle gasoline. To drive 100 miles is about $6 in fuel, and if it were pure electric, it'd be about $2. That's kind of a, a ratio that we talk about, but most people don't know that off the top of their heads, and it's an education challenge.
4: Yeah. I mean, I think on, on some level we should realize that we're at the point where even today with, say, a LEAF or a Volt, over the total cost of uh, life of the vehicle, we may well be at the point where the, the cost of ownership is, is equivalent. Um, and certainly with the incentives that uh, California and the federal government is putting towards this, we, we are at a point where we are, it is only going to get better. And with the kinds of ba- improvements in, in batteries and the lowering of cost in batteries, it, it will only get better. But let's be clear that it's really not been like we crossed some technological Rubicon in the last three or four years. Um, what we're talking about essentially for the mass market is 100 to 125-mile range vehicles, there were batteries that did that 15 years ago in the vehicles that were brought out in the ZEV mandate. And I think that we've come to understand that, in fact, that's kind of a sweet spot. A hundred miles takes people well where they want to go and beyond, um, and that what we need to do is not concern ourselves overly, I think, with these technological issues, but recognizing that it's, it's behavior and it's production of product um, and, and having consumers... And environmentalists and government understand the profound benefits that can be derived from electrification of transportation, be it cars or, or, or trains or whatever.
3: And, and if I could add to that, I mean, there's another communications opportunity and challenge here, and that is that, uh, you know, traditionally, um, you know, most American households, not most, but significant number of American households are two-car uh, households. Uh, historically, the mindset, and I've confessed that I've been captive to this myself, Every car I own has to be able to do everything I ever want to do, and that's just the way we buy our cars. You know, um, in California, they all have four-wheel drive. Or they all have all-wheel drive. Whatever. Um, the truth is that if you look hard, if you if you marry uh, total cost of ownership uh, with uh, uh, and you look at like how many miles in, in, a, in, a, in a classic uh, California household, um, one car uh, is the commuter car. It never goes more than 70, 80 miles a day because it's doing a 40-mile round trip. I've I've done that commute; it's horrible, but that's typical. Um, On the other hand, the other vehicle in the household might be the around-town kid carrier, but it's the vacation vehicle. So that vehicle, you know, doesn't go many miles, but when it does go, you know, when you do a long trip, you got to have you got to have range share. But the the second car, which builds up more miles in a year, typically 10 to 12,000, that could easily be an EV. Uh, if there were a compelling product offering at a at a at a compelling price, and so, you know, an internal segmentation communications that effect uh, really you know makes what marks uh, the picture mark paints quite viable. You know, 100 miles is is perfectly sufficient for that second vehicle.
1: Deirdre O'Connell is vice president of business development at Tesla Motors. Our other guests today at Climate One are Mark Geller, co-founder of Plug In America. Diane Wittenberg, Executive Director of the California EV Collaborative, and Anthony Eggert, former Commissioner with the California Energy Commission. I'm Greg Dalton. Let's talk about adoption. We've talked about some of the numbers, market penetration. We've heard thirty thousand here for these new cars, forty thousand there, Uh, but that's really a drop in the bucket in in the auto market. So, what are the projections, Anthony? You've looked into your crystal ball. Uh, What do we can we reasonably expect? And there's some wide range of estimates, but what can we reasonably expect over the next five or ten years for electric cars?
2: So uh, we did this, um, uh, the Energy Commission was also a participant in the Plug-in Electric Vehicle Collaborative, and as part of that, we they constructed a number of different scenarios. And I think it's important to, to call these scenarios, they're not projections, they're not forecasts, they're sort of, this, these are plausible futures that we could see uh, based on what we know about market adoption and what we know about, you know, the pace of, of change within the transportation market. Uh, you know again just using a, an example of a technology most people are familiar with hybrid vehicles that have been out in the market for ten years now account for about five percent of the market uh, here in California and approximately about one percent of the total vehicle fleet um, so that's a five percent of sales every year or 5%? five percent five percent of sales uh, annually going up you know still still creeping up which is good um, and then total vehicle uh, fleet is about one percent um, we we looked at uh, I would say an optimistic scenario of potentially a million vehicles here in the state by 2020, um, and I think that is that is plausible, but it's very aggressive. Uh, that assumes that we we sustain this positive consumer experience, that we address the challenges that exist uh, to adoption, um, but I think that's a that's a reasonable goal for California, um, which I think is going to be one of the leading states in adoption.
1: Are you counting pure electrics or also plug-in hybrids? Oh. That, that's for both, plug-in hybrid electric and, and pure battery electric vehicles. Dearman, Do does that sound right? A um, little too rosy? It, it, it sounds
3: very conservative to me. I mean, I started my... <laughs> I started my uh, you're going to sell more than yeah, that, yeah, that anyway, many of your own? I could, <laughs> I, could be, I could lean further forward on that statement. Um, uh, I, I come from uh, early in my career in marketing. I've never been... Uh, one of the things I learned there was never to be too bound by history... Nor uh, nor too captive to uh, to market projections. Um, uh, I would, uh, you know, I'm not going to tell you what I think because I would think all cars are going to be electric within the you know reasonable future, and I wouldn't put a date on that. But um, but I would rather refer you to what some of our competitors are doing. I mean, just uh, this week in Detroit. Um, uh, uh, um, Ford Motor Company, Al uh, uh, Mulally, announced, or they, they announced a projection, perhaps it wasn't Malali, one of his deputies, that they believe that by 2020, 25% of all the vehicles they sell will be some variant of plug in technology. Um, uh, Carlos Ghosn, uh, CEO of Nissan Renault, um, has made even more uh, aggressive projections. Um, So I would refer people rather to those, um, understanding completely why uh, um, uh, Anthony's uh, perspective is somewhat more cautious.
1: There also was the head of Fiat Chrysler saying, eh, not going to be a big deal for us. Well, you have to understand
3: where people are coming from. I mean, uh, he doesn't have many to sell. Is that what? No, 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 no. They're, I mean, no, no. They've made they've made historical investments. I mean, this didn't this this effort didn't start to to get to efficient vehicles didn't start yesterday, and it didn't start with EVs. Um, some of the European manufacturers have been working on clean diesel for years and have you know have uh, deep investments in that arena. Uh, right. Even one of our partners, we sell. Uh, electric powertrain components to Daimler but they've got a very deep stake in, um, in, in diesel clean diesel technology uh, Fiat has made significant investments in small ICE technology that's incredibly efficient. In fact um, they were brought on as the partner for Chrysler uh, with the implicit promise that they would start producing those powertrains which they just started doing this calendar year in the US to create a new fleet of small Chrysler-branded or Fiat-branded um, internal combustion engine vehicles. So, you know, pe- people's projections are uh, are, are, are a uh, uh, creature of where they're coming from.
1: And let, let's – Diane, your report has a range of projections from the International Energy Agency, which is quite high. I was surprised that they're the high projector where they've traditionally been very focused on fossil fuels. And they, but they're looking internationally. Tell us about those projections.
0: Right. Well, I think that uh – International projections see more penetration in China and Europe than, than even the United States. And then in the United States, California will be the biggest adopter uh, in North America, just as we've doubled the hybrid penetration for, for the nation at large. We'll at least do that with electric vehicles as well.
4: You know, I, I think in terms – I mean, I'm sort of with Darmot, obviously, in terms of expecting this to really uh, – uh, the, go big. The numbers to, to go big, but I think we have to understand that, that you know car makers logically over the years have not been suggesting projections that are very high because they weren't interested in making the, the product, and that and that government, California government as well, has kind of lowballed this for a long time, and has been unclear on what direction they think we should take to lower our our carbon emissions, to lower uh, the particulate emissions, to to bring all the benefits that lowering our petroleum usage. Would bring, and I think the the point that I see is that it's maybe time for us to actually make a choice. That the moment is maybe past to suggest that uh, if we can uh, get some slight benefits from cleaner gasoline or cleaner diesel, uh, you know, we've been proposed many different solutions, and it's been suggested there is no silver bullet, which of course there isn't. But I think we have to make evaluations and determine whether the benefits that we can derive over the next. 5, 10, 15, 20 years for moving from gasoline to electricity will bring us such great benefits that, in fact, we ought to make a commitment over this period to solve the problem now with technology that's available.
1: Well, if Ford's saying uh, 25%, that's, that's a big number. Absolutely. And do you think so that the auto companies are changing their tune, that they're really, this time they're serious and earnest about electric Absol- cars rather than kind of pretend...
4: Absolutely. Let's be clear. The ZEV mandate, you know, uh, zero emission vehicle, the zero emission vehicle mandate, you know, called for a certain number of, of cars, and, and six or seven thousand cars were produced in the 90s and up through about 2001. By April, May, June of this year, between Nissan and Chevrolet, we will have exceeded all of the requirements that the zero emission vehicle mandate made upon the car makers. In other words, some car makers are responding, exceeding that which the state of California
1: the greatest pressure in this regard, had compelled them to do. So industry is not just responding to government cattle prods. They're actually getting out there and, and leading and creating a market.
3: Yeah, but I would say that, and we've, we're, we're starting to make baby steps here in the U.S. and in California in, in the direction that Mark would have us go, which is picking a technology and running with it. But Diane mentions two markets where I think EVs are going to take off quickly. Um, and one is one is Europe, and, and two is China, and yeah. for, for different but similar reasons. And that is that, you know, in in Europe historically, especially coming out of World War II, they recognized, uh, in a very acute way, that they had a, a, a deficit as far as uh, available sources of oil and gasoline. And so they they uh, they priced uh, gasoline. They priced in the externalities in gasoline, uh, and that's uh, given. the the suppliers, the necessary signals to make the investments in in efficient vehicles. Vehicles in Europe tend to be smaller. They tend to be much more efficient in terms of uh, miles per gallon or miles per gallon equivalent. In China, um, a similar situation, uh, resource poverty with respect to oil, uh, a rising economy and adoption of vehicles, uh, and a policy tool, uh, industrial policy, um, uh, technology by fiat, um, that says there, there shall be EVs, and so there shall be. Marry that to an automotive industry which is increasingly global, um, and you see domestic OEMs, Ford, uh, GM, and so forth, pursuing this technology with reference to the U.S. market, but because they have interests uh, in in Europe and in especially in China. So um, I think Are U.S. companies
1: a, falling behind.
3: I would say no. But I think uh, American consumers are going to fall behind. I mean, there's a, there's a casual uh, um, uh, uh, rhetorical flourish that, that me and some of my colleagues uh, use that says, you know, if we're not careful uh, in the U.S., we're going to be uh, buying our, our premium vehicles uh, from Germany, our hybrids from uh, Japan, uh, and our electric vehicles from China. Um, that's a possible future. Um, It was even more possible two years ago when when the the domestics were on their uh, their knees. But um, I think that there's a a dawning awareness. The opportunity that's going to be lost is if these vehicles don't go on the road in the U.S. I think that we need to do a lot uh, in terms of demand stimulus to get these vehicles on the road. One, you know, for all the reasons I mentioned with respect to attracting uh, further investment, um, uh, that's going to lead to technological improvement, that's going to lead to a reduction in cost per unit, uh, but also for all the uh, ancillary benefits that, that we, we care about, whether it's climate, as we're discussing here today, whether it's national security, whether it's balance of trade, um, or transfer of payments um, that, that go to national competitiveness.
1: Dermot O'Connell is Vice President of Business Development at Tesla Motors. Diane Wittenberg.
0: I was going to follow up on what Dharma just said and what he said earlier, that Carmakers are not philanthropic organizations. And they're responding to the externalities, especially worldwide, of air quality, climate change, and then energy security. And since electricity is such a local product that is not threatened uh, generally by the pricing of, uh, of imported fuel, um, and because the demand in China is as great as the demand in the U.S. for people who want to breathe clean air. They want to sell cars, and they don't care about the fuel source. And if electricity is the right answer, to your point, then, then that's the cars they'll make.
1: Anthony? So, yeah, one,
2: <clears throat> one other aspect that um, sort of affects the, the market adoption is that in, in the U.S., vehicle sales, sales are effectively a replacement market. Um, there's more than one car for every licensed driver in the, in the U.S., and typically, they drive those to a particular uh, state of disrepair. Uh, uh, and then they sell them into the, uh, uh, the scrap market. And so there's sort of this natural turnover that occurs. Uh, and that is one of the constraints that they don't have in, in markets like China and, and other parts of Asia, where it's really an expanding market. And so you've got new, new customers coming into the market for the first time. Um, you know, They're not sort of wedded to particular technology choice. They're looking for a mobility service that gives them what they need. Uh, at a reasonable price. And so the, the potential certainly um, exists much more there. I, I did want to respond to one point that Mark made. I, I don't think it's uh, really necessary nor advisable to pick winners. And I think uh, California... For government
1: has, to pick winners.
2: Certainly yeah. for government to pick winners. And so, you know, the state has adopted a, um, mostly a technology-neutral policy framework. Um, so the policies that I'd mentioned, the vehicle standards, uh, the uh, the fuel standards... Uh, don't require a specific type of technology, but they favor uh, technologies that have certain performance, like lower carbon emissions. And so the industry is responding partially to those uh, regulations and also to the market. And that's exactly what we want. We want the policy to sort of uh, set the, the landscape and the framework
1: and then allow the market to decide and the industry to respond. Anthony Eggert is a former commissioner of the California Energy Commission. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about charging, where it happens, what kind of companies do it. It's a big piece of the electrical car roadmap is is where are those plugs and and, and who's paying for them and who's installing them. Mark, what do you think, how should the uh, plugging infrastructure uh, roll out? Well, I think the first thing we need to understand is that, um, you know,
4: for 80 to 90% of the cars that are out there, people are going to be charging them at home. Uh, the first market is going to be people who have access to electricity. In the United States, uh, it, a vast majority of people have access to electricity where they, where they park their
1: cars. So, but You just ruled out a whole bunch of people in San Francisco who park on the street. Clearly. Who, Prius it, drivers included. Uh, absolutely. I mean, you know, not every product is
4: going to be applicable to every person uh, who, who might like it. Um, and I think over the years, we will find solutions for that 50% in San Francisco that doesn't have, have a parking lot. But you don't first try and sell a product to the people for whom it doesn't fit. You Mm -hmm. first try and sell the product to the people who are craving that product and for whom it would make their life better. And in the case of electric cars, there's a huge market. Um, So I think that once we understand that most of that charging is going to happen at home, then resources ought to go there. We need public charging. We We need to enable people to use the vehicles further. To uh, take electric vehicles beyond even their hundred-mile range, I do this all the time with my own electric car. It's certainly it's certainly possible, um, but I and, and I think we need to spread out that charging infrastructure. And I think we also clearly need to make that initial charging infrastructure served two purposes not only enable people to to use their cars to their maximum but also to allow the 99% of folks who know nothing about this to have a positive experience with electric vehicles it's not enough to see an electric vehicle in front of a, uh, an electric vehicle charger in front of an empty space at costco you want a car there you want an interaction with a car owner and somebody who comes by who's skeptical and the way to do that is to ensure that they're used particularly in this first two or three years so i think what we need to do is Lower the barriers to using the infrastructure for the people who first get vehicles, which would mean, you know, limiting or sort of uh, supporting systems that don't require charging the little payment of a dollar or two that you might charge in order to fairly assess that person um, for the electricity, when, of course, that person is going to make the logical decision not to charge there because that $2 is still three or four times what the cost of the electricity is at home.
1: So, Deere do you think that
3: uh, entities should give away free electricity to these early adopters? Let me, let me come back to that uh, question. I, there's an important point that's lost when we start to talk about charging, um, and it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a real contrast to the previous generation of EVs in the U.S., and that is that uh, with the Tesla Roadster uh, and subsequent Tesla vehicles and almost all of the vehicles, uh, EVs that I'm aware of that are coming to the market, you don't need charging infrastructure. You need a plug. We've put the charger on board the cars now. Absolutely. So you need a plug. And that's Regular a, old household plug. Household plug. I mean, 110 is... Uh, 110, 120, that's a sl- the slowest way you can do it. It's better if you've got a washer-dryer hookup in your garage and, and you, or in your house, and you can hook up to that. But that satisfies... I mean, we've got empirical evidence of this with 1,500 vehicles on the, on the road and, and most of that data coming back to us at you know, by customer permission telling us when people charge... The truth is, we've always believed that people will charge where they sleep, you know? So um, whether that's, a, uh, that's their home, obviously, um, and, uh, Unless or... Unless they're a member or, of Congress, they might be sleeping yeah, Exactly, us, yeah. well, yeah. And then there's hotels, right? Okay, for whatever purpose. Uh, uh, there's hotels. These are logical places to start, you know, quasi-public uh, infrastructure. I believe that, that the kind of charging infrastructure... I mean, people, when they, see, when they start the conversation about charging infrastructure, they automatically think we're talking about... You know the, the, the parking meter charger or the, the Costco charger that Mark refers to. I think that, that's, um, that those charging uh, solutions have, um, have great signaling value and far be it for me to, to, um, to criticize the efforts of, of, uh, of our implicit allies who are putting charging infrastructure out there. But we believe corporately that most people are going to charge predominantly where they sleep um, and then maybe secondarily where they work.
1: So, the Department of Energy spent, what, a couple hundred million dollars putting charging uh, infrastructure in San Diego and different places? Is that
3: money not well spent? I try not to make political statements in forums like this, but I would stick to my previous comments. On Thanks, this dear, dear McConnell. Van um, <laughs> Wittenberg?
0: Well, I would say it may not be the most efficient use of installing public charging, but you can't find out where people really want to use public charging, whether it's Costco or Starbucks or a hotel, until you put them out there and you try it. And so the next step is sort of analyzing that data and and putting in place for the communities where uh, where do people actually charge? Uh, we had a conversation with local governments the other day about the fact that it doesn't, it's probably not as useful if the top of your head says put it at the local mall and most of the people who come to the local mall live within 10 miles. But if you have a uh, something in your community where people come 50 miles if you live at the beach or Disneyland or something, you know, put your charging there because they'd like to use their electric vehicle when they go to a football game or an attraction and, and charge while they're there and go back. So that kind of intelligence about where charging should be beyond where you sleep, which I absolutely agree with, with Jeremy on, is important. And then I actually think personally that we'll, we'll probably evolve to home charging, and then fast charging. And the fast charging may well be in gas stations because there'll still be a lot of gasoline cars on the road. And then that transition to all electric will take a long time just getting the old iron off the road. So.
1: Diane Wittenberg is executive director of the California Plug-In Electric Vehicle Collaborative.
0: Anthony Eggert, would you like to? Sure.
1: So I,
0: uh,
2: just a, one quick point of comparison. So you're right, the DOE is spending a couple hundred million dollars on Uh, what I would characterize as somewhat of an experiment to understand how this market's going to evolve and what types of charging people are going to uh, naturally gravitate towards. Um, uh, In this country, we spend about $750 billion annually on petroleum. In California, it's about $80 billion. More than half of that goes towards the uh, passenger vehicle sector. So this is a very, very modest investment uh, to help facilitate this new market. And I think we are going to have some stranded investments you know, where these chargers are put, we're going to find some of them are not going to be utilized at a rate that perhaps uh, justifies that particular uh, deployment. Um, the, uh, I, I agree with, with previous commenters that uh, the most, um, uh, most of the charging will be done at home and at night, and that's actually a really good thing right. uh, because it sort of marries up with our excess capacity or, or um, uh, generation capacity that we can use more effectively when we fill in that valley during the evening periods. Uh, and then workplace charging, I think, is another really uh, good place to focus because it also allows, if you come in in the morning, you plug your vehicle in first thing, you're actually still charging off the peak. Um, and, again, that provides additional benefits to our, our generating system.
1: Let's uh, thank you. Anthony Egert is a former commissioner of the California Energy Commission. Uh, we're going to move to audience questions. We'll bring the mic up here and invite you, again, if you're on this side of the room, to please go out that door and come in and line up on on this side over here, and we'll take your questions, one-part uh, one questions, one at a time. I'm Greg Dalton, and we're discussing electric vehicles at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. Our guests today are Anthony Eggert, former commissioner of the California Energy Commission, Diane Wittenberg, executive director of the California Electric Plug-in Electric Vehicle <laughs> Collaborative, <laughs> yeah. uh, Dermot O'Connell, vice president at Tesla Motors, and Mark Geller, co-founder of Plug-in America. First question, please.
2: Yes, good morning. Derek Walker with
5: Environmental Defense Fund. And we were a a co-sponsor of AB32, which I know has come up a couple times in the discussion today, and I've had the pleasure of working especially with Anthony particularly closely on this. So I'd like to know, maybe with Anthony first, what specifically is the role of
2: uh, electrification of of our transportation sector in achieving our goals for 2020 and then building to beyond
1: 2020? AB32, of course, California's centerpiece climate law. So, (laughs) AB 32 requires uh, the state of
2: California across all sectors to achieve uh, emissions levels equivalent to 1990 by 2020. Um, But I think it's important to note that that's really just a a stepping stone towards the real goal, which is our part in a stabilized climate, which is about an 80% reduction from the 1990 levels by 2050. And so for electric vehicles do offer uh, a great uh, potential for helping us achieve that goal. And again, if you kind of look across the sectors and see what we're going to need to get to 2050, we're going to need probably about a 90% reduction in emissions from the transportation sector by that time. That's effectively a decarbonization of the transportation energy system, and there's very few energy carriers that can can meet that test, Um, electricity being one of them, especially as we're also working on cleaning up the grid by introducing increasing fractions of renewables. So I think EVs in the 2020 timeframe... Uh, offer sort of a modest but measurable uh, contribution, and in the longer-term time frame, they offer a
1: huge potential.
5: Yes, sir. Next question. Thank you. Thank you for this uh, discussion this morning. I'm Steve Orr with Gartner Research. You talked a little bit about the charging infrastructure. I need to pull on that thread a little bit. Uh, lithium-ion battery uh, take you eight hours to charge it from your home, might take a little less if you have a 220 or 440 volt line, but you still have to spend some time charging. There's been a shift in the thinking process on electric vehicles, uh, particularly with the Volt. Rather than use a monster-size 300-mile battery that takes you eight hours to charge, the thinking process seems to be shifting toward, okay, let's use a a 40-mile battery will be smaller, quicker to charge. You're still talking about 45 minutes at the charging station. Uh, any thought so process? So question is, will there be yeah. different,
3: different platforms, different
5: right. technologies? Right, uh, and second part of that is... First, one part. Let's, okay. oh,
3: thanks. Yeah, let's, let's address the first part. Um, so uh, facts first. Uh, you, you say that it takes eight hours to charge a car. Um, it could, but uh, that's dependent on the size of the battery. Uh, let's take the, the Roadster battery, which yields 250 miles of range on a single charge. It's a 53-kilowatt-hour system. Uh, at a, uh, plugged directly into a 220 uh, outlet, you're talking about a 6- to 7-hour charge. That's at about 40 amps, uh, 40 volts. Um, at, uh, our, with our high-power connector at 70, uh, you're talking about 3.5 to 4 hours. Now, uh, Diane referred earlier to uh, the potential for fast charge. This would be DC-DC Connect 440. We're projecting for our second car, the Model S, which will have 300 miles of range and a, and a, and a battery capacity to achieve that, which is going to be – has to be toggled against overall vehicle efficiency, which is a function of rolling resistance, weight, and coefficient of drag. Um, we think that we're going to be well within 45 minutes for a full, uh, a full charge at uh, DC, uh, DC, DC Direct.
4: And, and we should be clear, you know, when we're speaking about charge time, we act as if these vehicles are actually driving 24 7, as if they're all in taxi fleets. I mean, most people's cars sit 22 hours a day. And so the idea that at the same time that they're sitting there doing nothing, they can charge at whatever rate will be sufficient is, I mean, and I want to make one other point. You know, you suggest uh, regarding perhaps the Volt is, uh, or a, uh, a plug in hybrid is the direction we're heading in to, so we can use smaller batteries. I think the, the more interesting thing that's happened is that. Unlike, say, 8 or 10 years ago, when uh, it was suggested that until we have a 300-mile range battery that costs the same as a a gasoline car, these cars would not be useful. In fact, what we're finding is that, no, that 100, 125, maybe even 75-mile range is actually what is useful for consumers and will lower the cost as opposed to trying to get a 300-mile range battery at the cost of a gasoline car we will find, in fact, that the 100-mile range battery at less than the cost of a gas car is going to be a much more attractive proposition to consumers.
3: And finally, just to refer to, because you come from a research agency, you would be uh, be most respectful of empirical facts. Some of the data that we're sharing with, that I referred to earlier, that we're collecting from our customers, again, at their permission, reveals that uh, their charge behavior... Uh, tends to be uh, much more. Uh, they're charging much more from a simple 110 hookup, uh, not even a 220, because they're simply topping up. Uh, they're driving. Uh, these are Department of Transportation figures. They're driving much less than the average 40 miles uh, a, a day uh, that most Americans drive, and uh, and so they simply can can uh, take that the, the slowest rate of charge, and that they leave the garage every day with uh, with a full a fully charged battery.
1: We're discussing electrical vehicles today here at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. Uh, We have to go to the next question. Yes, sir.
5: Hi, I'm James George with EnviroBeat. Uh, My question has to do more with uh, how does this, do electric cars play a role in a solution to possible climate change? Um, The first part is, with the 90%, would that be with our existing creation of electricity? Or does that assume that we're going to phase out coal or something to get those cuts?
2: Uh, The second part is, is it scalable, say, to China in mass? Okay, um, can Chinese yeah. people afford these batteries, and is there enough, enough of a lithium supply for everyone in the world, to, say, eventually, to have an electric car? Uh, so Anthony? Just, just real briefly, uh, and then I'll, I'll defer to others on the China question, but um, the, uh, we, ha- we have to look at this as a system. So the electric vehicle plugs into the grid. Uh, the grid is generating electricity through various uh, primary energy sources, one of those certainly nationally being coal, in California, we're phasing out coal as part of a performance standard, um, and so our grid is going to be getting cleaner and cleaner. <clears throat> By 2020, uh, 33% will be what we call new renewables, but it'll actually be greater than half uh, uh, zero carbon or near zero carbon, if you include hydro and, and nuclear. So uh, you have to look at the whole system, and, this, and the generation has to get cleaner. Uh, at the same time, we're adopting these, these new uh, plug loads. Um, I think nationally, hopefully, we can get uh, national climate legislation back on track. Uh, I think that's going to be critical if we really want to see the, the full benefits of this technology. Um, but on
3: the China question, I defer to others. Jeremy McConnell, yeah, I'm sorry. Was the China question with respect to lithium supply? No. No. no.
4: no. Oh, What's cost? But I want to carry on with what he yeah. was just speaking yeah. about because I think that um, going forward, we have to recognize a couple of things. One is that we are working to make the grid cleaner. The grid is getting cleaner. That effort does double duty when you put a car on the grid. When you take a car off of gasoline, uh, when, you, when, you, when you get an electric car, you have to remember the first day you have that electric car is the dirtiest day of that car's life. The first day you, you buy a gas car, that's the cleanest car of that day's life. As the grid gets cleaner, the cars get cleaner. And I think it's also pretty clear that the, probably for the car-driving public, if you own a car, I, I, I'm not sure that there's anything else you could do that would have a greater impact on your personal carbon footprint than to switch from gasoline miles and switching to electric miles, whether you're on the grid in California or you've got solar powers, pa- panels on your roof. Uh, and it may well be a
1: wash in West Virginia. But well, well, a lot of people would say reducing meat consumption is bigger. What we eat is bigger than what we drive, uh, but it, it has a big impact. I, I suspect
4: yeah. it's, it's, a, it's less of a behavior change to get people to go from a gasoline to an electric car than kicking the, the meat habit. Yeah, there's a whole
1: discuss, separate discussion there. Uh, Mark Geller is a co-founder of Plug-in America. We're discussing electric vehicles at Climate One. Next question, please.
4: Uh, my name is Bob Hare, and uh, my question pertains probably more to battery electric vehicles, but let me know if I'm wrong. And that is, as you look over the next 10 years, um, do you see the low-carbon fuel standard being the primary driver in potential sales of these vehicles, or do you think it will be a... Self-sustaining market, and related to that, how do you think the liquid fuel providers, the petroleum companies, would be responding to the increasing sales of electric vehicles?
1: Anthony, um, you're a policy person. Take the first part. Sh- sure. So, so uh,
2: the low-carbon fuel standard basically requires fuel sellers in the state to reduce the average carbon intensity across all of their sales ten uh, percent by 2020. Electricity is recognized as a low-carbon fuel. Uh, reduces uh, compared to the baseline, which is gasoline, by about 60%. Uh, so what the providers of electric uh, infrastructure can do, they can monetize uh, those sales and then sell them to the regulated parties. They can actually sort of opt into the program. Uh, and the buyers would potentially be uh, the sellers of petroleum products. Um, I think the actual value of that uh, credit is still something we have yet to, uh, to fully uh, understand. But I do think it will be a a modest contribution to the incentive to uh, deploy electric charging infrastructure. I don't think it's going to be the dominant factor that's going to drive this market in any way. It's really going to be people wanting the car. They're going to think that the car is cool and they like to be able to not have to go to the the gas station. Um, This is just another value stream
1: um, that can help facilitate uh, adoption. Anthony Ager, it's a former commissioner of the California Energy Commission. Uh, Diane Wittenberg, are oil companies threatened by electric vehicles?
0: Well, I would say, just using the collaborative as an example, which has been a public-private partnership for the last six months, oil companies have not, uh, that I've seen, been a stopper in any way. And if you take BP and the old Beyond Petroleum, I think that many oil companies sort of have the long-term development perspective that they're in the energy production business, whatever that looks like
1: is it possible that they think EV adoption will be so small over such a long period of time that it doesn't really threaten them? So we're Maybe. going from one billion cars to Dan Sperling's book to do two billion cars globally. There's enough demand out there for them, and, and electric vehicles are just a...
3: Yeah, is that? I, I mean, I'm a businessman yeah. first and foremost. I focus on the problems that are right in front of me. I mean, they, they are the, ultimately, they are the displaced competitor. I mean, the target's on, the tar- our, you know, we're targeting them, even more at a strategic level, even more than than the OEMs, with whom we already partner, because we provide them components to, to make their EVs possible. So you want to replace oil with electricity? That's the bottom line. I mean, look, I, I mean, again, we're under the banner of climate here, but I come to this from a national security uh, point of view. Um, that's been my most recent experience prior to this, and... Uh, and it's all about uh, reduction of oil intensity in our transportation sector because of the externalities, the costs, and, and the externalities associated with our dependence on oil, which is no longer we are no longer a surplus producer it, within our lifetimes, and that's the hangover that we're all getting that we're all getting over right now. America's just sort of Americans are just sort of waking up to the fact that oh wait a second we don't sell you know I mean it's a fungible you know commodity I get that but. Uh, but we, bottom line is we need to import, you know, what we need to, to continue to do what we do. Um, so they'd be, uh, they'd be stupid to be ignorant of what we're doing. They're not. Um, they've figured out, they're, they're, I'm sure they're figuring out strategies to address. I think that the effort around uh, fuel cell technology, uh, which was a former front runner in the alternative vehicle arena, was largely informed by... Uh, the interests and the, evolu- the possible evolutions of their business as, as refiners in the downstream uh, arena. Um, but, uh, yeah, at some point, you know, they're not going to, to Diane's point, you know, we haven't seen them and, and, uh, yet, but uh, I, I doubt that they're ignorant of what's going on or that they're, they're not doing anything about it. Mark and we, cert-
4: and we certainly did see them in the 90s. I mean, they were pretty visible in fighting the zero-emission vehicle mandate at the time. And um, I would suspect one way or another they're, gonna, they're going to have some impact. Um, Whether they do it very publicly or not, I don't know. They have a big impact, obviously, uh, within government um, as lobbyists. And certainly, you know, uh, BP is a a great example with their Beyond Petroleum. I mean, probably 99% of their business is petroleum, but 99% of their ads are are touting solar. And there's a disconnect that we just simply need to understand.
1: And oil companies have certainly uh, taken some stances on climate legislation to try to slow that down, et cetera.
3: In their, in their, per, in their natural business interests. Absolutely, okay. yeah, not bad people. Uh,
1: next question, please. Craig Braber, and I'd like to uh, address a small
4: and efficient vehicle. Uh, changing the, the focus a little bit, I stand six foot six and one half inch. <laughs> Would I fit in to one of your small and efficient vehicles? Representing the tip toppers of the tall clubs of America and Europe, by the way, ten percent of the population, five yeah. ten for women, six two for men, will they fit in? Yes. And then we're talking about the obesity of America. Will they fit in?
3: Uh, let, let me let me address. I'm six three and in cowboy boots six five. Um, I fit very comfortably in a Tesla Roadster. It's a sports car, so it's kind of low slung. It's a little awkward to get in, but once you're in there, you're perfectly comfortable. Uh, I, by my my daily driver is a mini in which I'm perfectly comfortable. So even if you electric being, mini or a gas, yeah, it's a gas mini. Oh, yeah. I got you know I, I'm brand brand uh, loyal up to a point. Um, the uh, so and I, I had the mini for a while. It's a, it's a long story. I love cars. It's a great dri- <laughs> it's a drive. Gotten- it's a great driving experience, which is you know which is I think what we're all after. Well, I, what I'm after. Um, so and and in Tesla's uh, case, we are. Um, we're building a, uh, a, a relatively a medium-to-large-scale uh, sedan in the Model S. So, again, you're going to be perfectly well-suited to what we're doing. But even the vehicles that we're supplying. So we supply the uh, the, the Smart, uh, the, the Daimler Smart Car. That's, a, that's an EV be- that uses our battery. I can get in and drive that one very comfortably. You might not want to drive a Smart. I understand that concern. Then we also do the uh, the Mercedes A-Class, which is a European small sedan by American standards, but again, very, you know, very drivable for people of our stature. Um, and then the, the other car that we're doing with Toyota right now is a RAV4 SUV. Uh, there are not a whole lot of SUVs that aren't comfortable for people of our stature to drive.
1: Dermot O'Connell is vice president at Tesla Motors. We're discussing electric vehicles at Climate One. Next question, please.
2: Yeah, hi, my name is Jeff Swinerton from uh, Center for Resource Solutions. and. Uh, The only thing keeping electric vehicles from being completely clean is, of course, that they plug into the grid, and and nationwide half of our electricity comes from coal, but of course, anybody can buy renewable energy right now. They can sign up for a a green power program from their utility if it's offered, and they can always buy renewable energy certificates, which they could then match with the electricity that they're using to power the car. Um, But I haven't heard any of the car manufacturers or any of the car sellers talk about Contracts with buyers to supply them with renewable energy, with renewable energy contracts, so that they can have a a truly zero emission car going forward.
4: Yeah, I mean, it's very interesting. This is a a very important issue in Europe. And in fact, in Europe, there are manufacturers that do exactly that. When you buy the car, you're buying a year or two years' worth of uh, electricity. You've gotten certification that your power is green in the way that these certification programs assert that your power is green. Um, certainly, American Japanese car makers in the United States could well do that. And if there was a demand for it, I suspect they would. And if they viewed it as a value add by being able to say that the car is completely powered by green electricity, perhaps they'll do that. You know, clearly, a consumer can, has, has various choices from buying that to converting the electricity that goes through their house to solar. Um, I think that, you know, it, it, it's, it's a likely path to take. But the cars are already greener. I mean, the
1: important thing to understand got, yeah, is plug got, it in. Yeah, yeah we got uh, – uh, Anthony Eggert, is it possible? You're in the energy regulatory business. I mean, are cars and energy going to be packaged
2: together? Um, so th- this was an issue that did come up uh, during discussions at the, uh, the collaborative, and certainly there was a lot of interest in the prospect of having some sort of a package deal where uh, consumers could have the choice to opt into a program that would allow them to, to know that they're – uh, generation for their vehicle or perhaps for all of their uses could be 100% renewable. I think it's, it's definitely something we want to look at. Uh, clearly in Europe, it, it does seem to actually uh, make a difference in terms of um, uh, people's choices. I know uh, BMW in particular has been a very uh, uh, vocal advocate of, of allowing for this to occur. So I think it's, it's, it's something that deserves further uh, consideration.
3: So. And, and we already, I mean, we, we're start I often say we're startup, please let us just focus on this. We'd, we'd love to solve all the world's problems at once, but it's a little beyond us at the moment. Um, we have a very active program where we f- refer customers, we, we try and interest customers in the complete solution, and we refer them to one of our sister companies, SolarCity, um, and uh, many of our customers uh, uh, pursue a rooftop uh, installation um our role is simply you know must it's not a commercial role as much as it is simply you know trying to uh trying to uh, deliver
0: uh, by give business uh, to to the other yeah. business by, yeah, exactly. your, by your founder yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, greg I would just add that in the in the collaborative i would say the most spirited discussion in the whole six months where the automakers ranging on that issue of is sort of end to end zero emissions important to the consumer, or how important to the consumer is it, versus we just do the car. So there's, that's a real uh, interesting topic.
4: But I think you know, we ought not let the perfect uh, become the enemy of the good here. And if the cars are already cleaner, yes, we want them cleaner still, but we ought not postpone interesting people in the cars, because
5: they could be cleaner still.
1: We want them now. Uh, last question, please.
5: Um, Let's see. I I have a question about uh, the way the government raises money to fund uh, uh, transportation infrastructure. And right now they seem to do it through a gas tax as as one of the ways. Sure. Now, with the uh, move to electric vehicles, um, they won't be recovering anywhere near as much money. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are on how that uh, infrastructure will be paid for. Will there be a special tax on EV owners or taxing electricity?
1: Uh,
2: mileage ideas, Anthony Eckert? Uh, another topic that was uh, picked up and addressed by the, uh, the collaborative, and I think um, the conclusion was that, yes, eventually uh, these vehicles are going to have to pay their fair share of, of road taxes um, to be able to use the system. Um, I think the actual impact to the collection uh, for road taxes is likely to be negligible um, you know, for the next five-plus years, so we have some time to figure this out, you know, whether it's um, uh, you know, a per-mileage charge of some sort uh, that's, that's taken. Um, I think there's a number of different mechanisms that could be employed uh, and another issue that we do have to deal with and grapple with eventually, but it's not pressing. It's not going to break the bank of the, uh, the Highway Trust Fund
1: uh, tomorrow. So. Well, at some point, there'll be a change in the, in the way that transportation is taxed to keep up the roads.
3: That would be a high-class problem, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's, <laughs> let's, let's hope for that. Let's hope for that, uh, that, that the, to be solving that problem it, within five years. Yeah.
1: And let's end with a high, that high-class problem. Our thanks to Anthony Eggert, former commissioner of the California Energy Commission, Diane Wittenberg, executive director of the California Plug-in Electric Vehicle Collaborative, Dermot O'Connell, vice president at Tesla Motors, and Mark Geller, co-founder of Plug-in America. I'm Greg Dalton. Thank you all coming to Climate One today.